0: Turn down the lights and pour yourself a drink because here begins the story of dashing young men, ladies in peril, and the first steps into a world of mystery and danger you'll only find in your wildest dreams. Millionaire playboy Cranston Walker has left the high life behind to help a friend from the war. Back home, His sister Vivienne is sitting pretty, running the family business. But Cranston is about to find out his friend has gotten into a far more dear position than either of them realized. It's time for Neon Jezebel.
1: Hello, friends. We will return to this exciting episode of Neon Jezebel in just a moment. But first, a word from Baby Blue Manatorine Cigarettes. Extra-dimensional pockets are the public safety scourge of our age. Areas of friction between our fourth-dimensional space and fifth-dimensional space can appear anywhere and at any moment. If one appears near you, you could have extremely detrimental effects to your psychological health. There's only one way to protect yourself from the adverse effects of extradimensional exposure, and that's manatorine. Mannitorine is FDA-approved to combat the psychological toll extradimensional pockets can have on a person. Lighting up a manatorine cigarette while in the vicinity of one such pocket can save you weeks, months, or even years of psychological distress. Baby blue manatorine cigarettes are wrapped in our patented baby blue fast-catching paper. No cigarette paper in the world lights as quickly or reliably as Baby Blue's. Baby Blue fast-catching paper not only lights faster, but it burns hotter, too. Each strip of Baby Blue fast-catching paper is treated with a special and entirely safe chemical compound that increases the normal temperature of a lit cigarette, which means the mannitorine inside oxidizes faster and gives you a stronger dose of mannitorine than any other product on the market. Nothing is faster and nothing is safer when it comes to extra-dimensional pockets. Get the relief and protection you need right when you need it with Baby Blue fast-catching paper, found only in Baby Blue Manatorian cigarettes. That's Baby Blue. Ask for it by name. And now back to the program. Dear Vivian, I'm writing to let you know that my little sabbatical is going to be extended for a time. The job my old pal asked me to step in on is proving far too good for my health to walk away from now. I hardly think I need to apologize for this, as I'm sure you're loving every moment as my proxy in the CEO's office. You were always the more comfortable of us when it came to walking in that particular pair of father's shoes. That's to say nothing of your superior qualifications, after all. You were his girl Friday while I was off in the war. I dare say you've had your eye on that big chair of his for some time now. You ambitious minx, you. So no apologies. But an explanation all the same. I mentioned before I left that I had been contacted by an old friend who needed my help with something. I don't quite remember how far into the details I went, so I'll lay them out here. A few months back, I got a letter from my friend Lucian Gabriel. I met Lucian during the war... We were both members of that fortunate few who got herded off to join the Praetorian Guard. Every man in boot camp had to take the test, but what I'm told is that only 1% showed any potential. And I can tell you from experience that half of us at the Praetorian Academy washed out. I know Father fought like mad to get me a commission. Yelled at some poor White House secretary until he was blue in the face. But I knew there was nothing for it once I got to the Academy. Every day they trumpeted us with messages about how the discovery of the voice was going to change the shape of modern warfare. No. Old Man Wilson was hell-bent on getting every man he could into the Praetorians, no matter what their station. At the Academy, there were films being shown all day long of guards using the voice to make entire squadrons turn and flee. I'm sure, under test conditions, those kinds of results could be managed but it was nothing so dramatic in the field. None of us ever shouted back a charging enemy. It was once we got them one-on-one that we really shined. No more of that horrid business of getting some captured hun to crack in a dark, sweaty room before asking him questions. Five minutes with one of us, and he'd be dancing like a chicken while reciting the coordinates of his forward bass. Lucian and I had a few run-ins at the academy, but we didn't properly meet until we were both stationed in Chateau Therry. For me, it was rough living, life in our little tent city on the Marne, especially as I would occasionally get correspondence from the chaps whose fathers did manage to secure officers' commissions for them. Naturally, they wanted to hear tales from the front line. That green, green grass, eh? For Lucian I got the distinct impression that life in the guard was a step up, at least when we weren't being shot at. Three hot meals a day was no guarantee in his old life, but the guard was a great equalizer. We had no choice but to rely on each other. We were under orders, you see, never to use the voice on one of our own boys. Unless, of course, he were under arrest for something. The voice was a weapon, they told us. You only pointed at the enemy. That didn't do much for the men, though. There was always a lingering distrust. There was even a particularly brash Irishman at mess once. He swore that if I ever used the voice on him, he'd cut my tongue out in my sleep. It took me aback, as you can imagine. But I was spared from having to answer him personally by an officer intervening. Looking back, though, I suspect it was just nerves. The poor fellow was too high-strung and needed to lash out at someone. Rough types are usually like that, never quite embracing the cleansing power of a good jog. At any rate, we in the Praetorian Guard were unpopular with the rank and file, which made strange bedfellows of us all. You saw in the infantry these little gangs forming, boys from the same city or state and the like. All the farm boys clustered together while miners' sons shed coffee, so on. Not in the guard. By my reckoning, were it not for the guard, a fellow like me and a fellow like Lucian would never have rubbed elbows, much less locked arms against the enemy onslaught. Lucian's the sort of chap that makes one almost glad to have gone through the terrors of war. So, when I got his letter asking for help, you can understand that I simply had to go. I'm sure you thought I was just taking the excuse to carouse, But the bond Lucian and I forged is a sort that can only be found in the crucible of desperate war. Now, as for the work itself. Upon returning home, Lucian found himself once again unsure of three hot meals a day. If I had known, of course, I would have found something for him at the company. But I don't suppose his pride would have allowed that. Nonetheless, the old boy landed on his feet. Somehow, Lucian secured a position as a bodyguard for a woman by the name of Rosamund Syme. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's become quite the rage amongst the housewives of our fair land. Before I go on, I must assure you, Vivian, that Miss Rosamond Syme is a dame of the highest order. The way she carries herself is pure finishing school. I can't speak to how good her people are, but there's not a hair on her head that would be out of place at one of the country club's cocktail parties. Her smile is warm, but never too big. Her laugh is hearty, but never too loud. And when she starts dispensing a sage wisdom, well, She speaks with such authority and candor that you can't help but take her seriously. And as if that weren't enough, the lady has a wit on her that could take the beard off a lumberjack. You'd like her. Needless to say, she's a looker. If she had wanted to, I have no doubt she could have made a name for herself in the pictures. However, as fits her fine character, Rosamond took the road less traveled by. Rosamond's father's a big cheese in the medical world. A clinical psychologist studying what they call extra-dimensional affective disorder. It's a mental illness that afflicts certain unfortunate souls that get a bit too close to a dimensional pocket. We've never discussed it, but have you ever seen one? They were just another hazard for us in the war. The air would be filled with smoke and the racket of gunfire and suddenly there one would be. This bowl of white light just sitting in the ground or hanging a little in the air. It's a terrible thing being up close with one of those. A man has to screw up his courage for a battle, and we all found ways of keeping ourselves in the fight, no matter how dark the day got. But once you were face to face with one of those pockets, every trace of valor and manhood in you evaporated. And it seems every so often, a fellow never quite gets his nerve back. He lives out the rest of his days with that horrid, unshakable fear. It's a fate worse than death, from what I've heard, but the good Dr. Syme has made it his life's work to find a cure. A few years back, Dr. Syme published a book on all of his findings thus far. As I understand it, the book just about lit the medical world on fire, but was all a bit too brainy for the common man. That's where Rosamond came in. She took it upon herself to educate people in her father's work without them needing four years of medical school first. So she goes around the country giving lectures, and they really are something else. I've sat in on a few of them now, and it is not at all what it says on the tin. You see... The pockets trigger something in what's called the sympathetic nervous system. There's all sorts of chemicals your body produces. Hormones that gave our caveman ancestors the stuff they needed to go toe-to-toe with saber-toothed tigers and all that. Well, that whole system goes into overdrive when you're close to a pocket. That's what the manotaurine cigarettes do. They suppress the sympathetic nervous system and make the whole experience bearable. They gave us patches in the war. Three to a man. Whenever you came across a pocket... You pulled off the backing paper, slapped it on your neck, and did your best to get back in the fight. Mind you, those patches were a fair bit stronger than the cigarettes you get at the drugstore. But those are the perks of working for Uncle Sam. As I said, it's all a bit brainy. But Dr. Syme claims that there's one chemical in particular, a hormone called oxytocin, that's just as good as mannitorine, provided you can get enough of it in your system. By his reckoning, the poor folk who developed extra-dimensional affective disorder simply didn't have enough oxytocin in their systems when they encountered the pocket. So far, so medical, right? Well now, this is where you might want to loosen your collar. Rosamund is fond of calling oxytocin the bonding hormone. It seems her father got wise to oxytocin's angle when he found that new mothers universally had weaker reactions to seeing a dimensional pocket. Far from being womanly instinct putting the child's survival above her own, Dr. Syme got the idea that there was something chemically special about new mothers. Yes, it seems that new mothers are just chock full of oxytocin. The new mothers with the highest levels of oxytocin are those who breastfeed. Now, when Rosamond does her lectures, she brings visual aids along, and sister of mine, I was not prepared. It was nothing terribly new, of course, but one does not expect to see those kinds of images in a lecture hall. And that was just the start of it. It seems that the most reliable way for a body to keep their oxytocin up is maintaining a regular and vigorous intimate life. I won't lie. For a few moments, I was prepared to believe that Rosamond was, in fact, a very refined smut peddler and nothing more. But the way she presented it was so cool and deliberate, so... Well, so her, that I couldn't help but take it for good medicine. You really must find one of her books. They are entrancing to read and her lectures. You have no idea. This episode of Neon Jezebel will continue in just a moment. But first, we want to hear from you. Podcasts are the newest and most exciting way to listen to your favorite audio programs while on the go. But you already knew that. What you may not know is that the success and longevity of a podcast depends on you, our valued listeners. If you've enjoyed this program, we encourage you to write a review of our show. You can do this on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen from. You can also contact us directly. Find us on Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word. Our announcer, Lisa Lemoir, is a continental beauty of the highest order, but you don't have to take my word for it. Find your way to Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast to have a look for yourself. While you're there, be sure to follow us to receive updates in a timely fashion. That's at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word, on Instagram. And now, we return to Neon Jezebel. Vivian. With the sensational content of these lectures, I'm sure you can imagine that more than a few feathers have been ruffled, particularly in those areas of the country that regard sex as a man's prerogative and a woman's duty. Ruffled so thoroughly, in fact, that they took to the picket line. My friend Lucien started noticing some rather rough types among those protesting Miss Symes lectures. The hand-wringing housewives he could take care of on his own, but he felt it wise to call for backup, now that there were objectors of younger, masculine persuasions. As I said, I simply had to answer his call for help. It was the only thing to do, as I'm sure you understand, to say nothing of it being exactly what mother and father would have done. The plan was for me to go incognito. I would sit in the audience, and Lucian would guard from the wings. At that first lecture, I was somewhat in a haze as I shuffled out with the rest, caught fairly off-guard by Rosamund's visual aids. But I was brought keenly back to my senses once outside by a sudden onslaught of indecent verbal abuse. A faction within the protesters had worked the whole band up into a froth. This faction were the sort of chaps to hit the town without their shirt sleeves, sitting in the bed of a pickup truck listening to music that is simply impossible to dance to. My first impression of them was not that they were the great defenders of family values that they portrayed themselves to be. At my best guess, their chief complaint with Rosamond's advice to the women in her audience is that it would lead to a great deal more being demanded of them in the bedroom. Though if they had channeled the energy from that protest into the proper treatment of a lady, I'd wager that the ladies in question would have no need for Rosamond's lecture, and the men would break even, as it were, in energy expenditure. Such is the paradox of those who will walk ten miles at their own devising, but not ten feet at the beck of another. I took their measure, but made no provocation. They looked too young to have been in the war, and at least one of them appeared too emaciated to have passed the physical. Around the side of the building, I found a convenient spot for a cigarette that placed me equidistant between the crowd and the route Lucian would be guiding Miss Syme across. When that lady did appear, their crowd surged towards her. One of the punks at the vanguard got close enough that I could accuse him of smudging my boot. This provided sufficient distraction for Lucian to bundle Rosamond into the car and make good her escape without fear of disruption. Later, I reconvened with them at the hotel to mild plaudits. I had earned my pay from her and a glass of scotch from Lucian. Now, before you start quoting Mother to me, I'll have you know two things. Firstly, Rosamond has no idea who I really am. As I said, Rosamond carries herself with a finishing schoolgirl's grace, so you can imagine her discomfiture at finding out she was under the protective services of a scion of the Walker Corporation. I fear that she might demand Lucian take the audience post solely for the purpose of granting me the dignity of being her chaperone. And of course, it is always a rather uncomfortable business being tended upon by those of a higher station. It would not be unreasonable for her to begin regarding me as a suitor, and an unwanted one at that, which would only further complicate our arrangement. To spare all involved any gauche senses of obligation, I have invented an alter ego. I call him Jackson Edgewater. I feel it sounds reliable and salt of the earth. Jackson was in the Praetorian Guard, the grain of truth at the center of my lie. I have conducted myself most uprightly with Miss Syme, in an unsophisticated sort of way. However, Lucian has hinted to her that I have a roguish streak, which allows me to be mysterious when such a thing is useful. As for the money, it is all being sent to a trust in Lucian's name. He knows about it, and made much less of it than I had expected. I hadn't wanted to tell him, but I also hadn't wanted him thinking I was taking money I have no need for. So there you have it. All above board and quite in line with the Walker family spirit, thank you very much. Now, had my interventions thus far proven sufficient to hold back the madding crowd, I would be bringing to an end my sojourn and finding some qualified fellow who really does have use for the money. I have chosen to extend my leave of absence because matters have rather escalated in the last week. The weekend last, Miss Syme was speaking at a conference of psychoanalysts. She was, in essence, attempting to persuade them to take the route of she and her father. Dr. Syme being the one in the laboratory, and she bringing his findings to the masses. Though perhaps she was merely defending the veracity of her own work. It was on the dry side, whatever it was. On Saturday evening... Miss Syme was to meet her father for dinner with Lucien escorting her. I was in the hotel lobby, giving every appearance of deep engrossment in a newspaper, while watching for those who might molest my employer. It was somewhat crowded. There was a line at the concierge desk, and a small group of more adventurous types shuffling through the rack of brochures for local attractions. It was that kind of hotel. As Miss Syme and Lucien entered the lobby, they attracted a little attention. There were three gentlemen in particular that I had clocked already, having no apparent purpose in the lobby. None of them made any sort of move towards her. However, a child came toddling up, tears streaming down its face. Well, I thought, that's better protection than any I can offer. What kind of villain is going to make his move while the woman is cradling a weeping child? There was some discussion between Rosamond and the child, who was no more than seven. Then Rosamond took the child's hand, and they walked together in search of the parents. I remained in my chair, but kept a close lookout. The crying had attracted some attention, so others were looking as well, though they seemed satisfied with the whole affair upon seeing a woman take the child's hand. The search didn't take long. Mother and father, along with their older son, were standing by a side door leading to the garage. Mother was on the verge of a fit, and father was talking her down and occasionally scanning the room. He didn't seem to know quite what to do, and I wagered in my mind that they were in from the country. Perhaps father himself had never seen so many people. At least, not without a gun in his hand and a sergeant telling him which way to charge. When Rosamond approached, mother fairly threw herself on the child, like Rachel seeing one of her children resurrected. Father was a mass of gratitude the likes of which he'd never experienced before. He kept shaking Rosamond and Lucian's hands, turning to look at his wife and returned son, then back for another round of profuse handshakes. All at once, mother ceased crying. She turned both boys towards Lucian and gave them a little nudge. They ran over and the older boy, who looked about twelve, gave Lucian a sock right in the unmentionables. My old friend went down and the boys began attempting to wrestle him. It was no good, two children against a man built like Lucian, but his only recourse was to give a beating to the youngsters, and he isn't the sort. Meanwhile, father's handshake had turned to something else. He now had Rosamond by the arm and was pulling her with both hands towards the door to the garage. At this point, I was on my feet and charging in like the fourth hussars at Ailau. Yet I had about a hundred meters to cover, and father looked to be making some real headway. It was to my relief that Rosamond gave the old man a swift left hook that knocked him back. Unfortunately, the sudden release of his grip dropped Rosamund to the ground. Mother now pounced on Rosamond, tugging at her hair and trying to get her back on her feet. Father recovered and grabbed Rosamond by the arm again. Lucian grabbed for mother. He was still on his knees, recovering from that first blow. The younger child had crawled up on him and bit Lucian on the neck. That did it. Lucian grabbed the small child by the hair and tossed him aside. The older boy was none too pleased and lunged in, getting Lucian in the eyes with his thumbs. Lucian swung wildly, catching the boy in the gut and sending him flying into a wall. He was free, though blind for the moment. Mother and father, evidently resigned to their children's fates, were still working to get Rosamond to her feet. She was halfway up when I got within range and threw myself bodily into the fray. I went right over Rosamond's head, getting father by the throat, carrying him backwards onto the floor. It was now that Mother seemed to take notice of the children. She screamed beast at Lucian and began clawing at him like a feral cat. This gave her away, though. Lucian, still blinded, found the woman's throat and pulled her to the ground. Meanwhile, I was wrestling with Father. Strong chap that he was, his intention was to get me on my back, and he barely nearly managed it. I gave him an inch to lunge up towards me. Then, pulling him up a bit, I brought the hard bone of my forehead into his nose. The shock of it gave me a moment to cement my advantage, which I did by turning him on his stomach while wrenching one arm up the wrong way. The older boy was recovering himself not far from me. Hearing his father's howl of pain, he started for me only to get the soundest slap of his life from Rosamond, spun him around and dropped him on his keister. I imagine the next time he'll take a slap that sincere, a pretty young woman will be calling him a cad. By this time, hotel employees were arriving, and it was a bad scene. A child, barely of school age, was bawling in the lobby, while Lucian held his mother to the floor by her neck. Meanwhile, I was working on pulling his father's arm from its socket. Rosamond was towering over another boy, but from the look on her face, she knew he deserved it. The police were called, and there were questions aplenty all around. It turns out that mother and father are members of a group calling themselves The Church of the Hero Jesus. Evidently, it's a uniquely American splinter of Christianity who like to imagine the Messiah as Eugene Sandow. They were also deeply offended by something Rosamond said. It hardly matters what. And this couple decided to take it upon themselves to right a wrong in the world. I haven't the slightest notion what they intended to do with her had they managed to bundle her into their car, but that's all for the better. There was a young journalist poking around a couple days ago, and I offered to buy him a drink to spill the beans. It seems the church's pastor is being cagey about the whole business. He denied knowing anything about it, of course, but tried to turn the blame back on Rosamond. It seems he went on a bit of a tirade about protecting the family in the end, though none of that got printed. "'Neither Lucian nor I is convinced that this so-called church won't make another attempt, "'and thus I am duty-bound to remain in the ostensible employ of Miss Rosamond Syme. "'I have every faith in your abilities, Vivian, to manage the company in my absence. "'I would ask that you find the box with Dad's old livery from his days on the Vigilance Committee. "'In particular, I would like you to send me his sword-cane. "'I excelled further in fencing than wrestling, as you know.' All the best, your brother, Cranston Walker.
0: Neon Jezebel is made by Zachary Westbrook. Announcements by me, Lisa Lemoigne. You can find Neon Jezebel on the web at our Instagram, Neon Jezebel Podcast. If you enjoyed this program, be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcast or wherever you are listening from.